1: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be with you today. Our listeners here at 1001 Heroes are often contacting me. The best way is email, just check our show notes, regarding ideas for show topics, and I appreciate and enjoy those contacts very much. One longtime listener, Andrew Gardner, has come forward with a humanitarian story regarding the recent and still ongoing efforts to rescue both Americans and key Afghan allies who are trapped in Afghanistan. And I thought you listeners would be interested in hearing what he has to say. I also believe you would like to know that there have been hundreds of non-political efforts on the part of Americans and their allies who were involved in the Afghan war for freedom to save lives of those who were abandoned. The life-saving effort which our guests will be sharing today has been coined a Digital Dunkirk, And although it's one of many efforts, it deserves credit for the speed at which it was assembled and placed into action and the number of lives it actually saved. I chose to cover this story because of the simple maxim which states, if we don't learn from our history, we're bound to repeat it. And when we all pull together to achieve things, we can move mountains together. Andrew Gardner and Annie Hardy, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you, John.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: Andrew, would you get us started, kind of introduce yourself and and Annie, and also what your position is and how you became involved in this effort?
2: Yeah, my name is Andrew Gardner. I'm the CEO of Reese Technologies. Um, We're a a data science firm that specializes in solving problems for the federal government. Uh, We started our business in COVID, uh, just trying to help the, the CDC Progressed working with homeland security and the treasury, and moving our, our, our way through that path, uh, got the chance to work a lot with the Department of Defense and the uh, and the Air Force in the innovation space. And in the DoD, the innovation space is unique because there is such a, you know, necessarily rigid structure hierarchical organization that has its you know long rooted origins, but you have sort of like these you know, classically oddballed, motivated, excited folks who are just excited to be part of advancing the mission. And they are frequently, um, you know, every single day I'll wake up on my LinkedIn and I have, you know, 10, 15, 20 different stories that of people doing clever things and advancing the cause and advancing the, the mission of the country. And so I, I was able to, over the last really year, build these deep relationships with folks within the DOD and within the intelligence community, and you really start feeling a part of the mission to a certain extent. I think as someone who's never worn the uniform, um, as a civilian, there are, there's a certain perspective that I bring, but there's also a lot of investment in understanding the, the mission of the warfighter and in understanding the sacrifices that they make for our country. And so you be- can't help but become very uh, emotionally tuned to what they're going through and the sacrifices that they make. So when Afghanistan fell on that Sunday, um, I had several calls from individuals. I had ser- several calls from you know two, two people that I developed relationships with that had spent time sacrificed, had learned to love the people in Afghanistan, and it just broke my heart to hear them, you know, to hear the sense of inevitability that they had, to hear the stories of people in Afghanistan who had sacrificed more than you or I could imagine for the chance of their children having freedom. And and so with that being emotionally tuned into them, I noticed from Sunday, through probably about Tuesday, there was just almost dead silence from the innovation community. All of the chatter, all of the gung ho, you know, let's 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 change the world just stopped. And then, you know, like we all saw, a whole lot of um, you know uh, conversation from the military community. Was it worth it? Yes, it was worth it. You know, how do I reconcile these feelings? And you suffered with them, right? And you, you empathize with that, especially you suffer and empathize enough to know that you um, you'll never really know the burden that they're carrying. And so I think we all started kind of having a sense of looking for what can I do? And and that's very it's a very American thing. Where can I step up? What can I do? And about Wednesday, this chitter chatter started going and saying, hey, we can we should, you know, do something. And so people would together mirror boards, which are in the air force innovation communities, kind of like a digital whiteboard and start putting ideas on these whiteboards. And, and, and there was just this inherent in our national fabric, this dialogue that started happening in the innovation community, you know, innovation isn't something we, we do in organizations. It's the thing we do as, as, um, as people that are connected across organizations that's facilitated by the resources from our organizations but it is the human interaction reaching across the table reaching across the field and and finding you know solutions and so i watched this happen and and all of these folks really realizing in so many ways that they were trying to do this innovation activity outside of the formal chain of command so they had to be very respectful and not put things at risk and not you know you have a breach of protocol, but you saw them light up and say, if it's going to be, it's up to me. Like we, the people have to bind together. We have to find out how to do this, not just be told and sit back and wait. And so with this sense of urgency, you know, I, I found myself in a group that was probably about 10 to 15 uh, people that were primarily uh, department of defense and, um, and intelligence community folks who, you know, were my frequent innovation online chatter people. And they just had put a bunch of things out there. We could do this. I know this guy. We, we can get the satellite image. Here's my interpreters. I think at the time they had somewhere around um, maybe 100 to 150 names of interpreters and allies and their family members who they were trying to get out. Now, think about this for a minute. At the time, there are people that served for seven, eight, nine years of straight combat and earned their citizenship. They were Afghanis earned, and they are as much American as you can imagine. And now they're not only American, but they're deployed at Fort Hood, or they're deployed you know, anywhere around the world and their families in Afghanistan. Or Annie and I have a, a close friend here who, who we came to, to love through this, who he earned his citizenship and he was here in Austin, Texas working to build a life for his family, his wife and his four children, and to bring them over. And all of a sudden, you know, the country falls apart, like quicker than we could even imagine in our, in our minds. And I remember getting pulled into this conversation and looking at my whiteboard and thinking, okay, what do I do? Like, I don't know anything about Afghanistan. I don't know what they speak. I don't know what the topography looks like. I don't know what the road conditions are. All of these areas where I typically would look as a data scientist and, you know, start to formulate something around it. I just had nothing other than the desire, other than connections, other than honestly, John, like the love of the country that I get from listening to your podcast. And I'm not saying that like as a plug for you, like legitimately, you know, you 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 take this this national message in and it becomes a part of your fabric. And so thank you. All I had at that time was connections, and that's introducing Annie Hardy. I said, well, what can I do? I'll, you know, I'll call whoever I know, anybody that I know, anybody that I trust, and number of people, about 10 people from Austin that I brought in, and then right, like, three minutes before the call was happening, I'm like, you know what? Annie Hardy. I should get Annie Hardy to die. Like, let's just play my luck. And so I called her up and, can you jump on this random line? And, you know, that was – for this project, and Annie can describe her old Mormon, that was the magic thing that she kind of came in and just wrapped structure, organization, and force behind it. And was able, I, I come from the, the startup world, you know, the small, agile, quick, rapid company to, to fill little gaps. And she comes from the large corporate world. And typically, we tend to see ourselves as like, oh, startups versus big companies. But I gained this. Amazing appreciation for for um, her role within Cisco and the Cisco family, and just amazed to be a part of a part of the mission. See where they fit in. See where I fit in. See where students at Texas State fit in. You know, and and like I told you before, where even you know to, we would get so emotionally exhausted in this project, so broken down with all we were going to talk about that we did that you'd go and you just. You know hug your kids and go to bed and you try to get a bit a bit of rest with all of the guilt of what you're not doing. and I'd flip on your podcast and I like I mentioned I listened to Nathan, Nathan Hale um, and it just recharged me and um, so so it's a legacy and it's great to be a part of this. So Annie, I called you just before that 12 o'clock you know Skype caller, why don't you pick up from there?
0: So it, thanks, it's, it's a great background, some of which I knew, some of which I didn't, um, because yeah, uh, Andy called me, or he texted me, he's like, there's a phone call that you need to be on, and I was like, uh, about the Afghan efforts, and I was like, you know what, yeah, let me, let me hop on this call, I got, you know, some time right now, it's my lunch hour, so I hopped on this call, and stepping into the energy was intense. So what happens is civilians, we are disconnected from the reality of um, the urgency behind saving lives, right? That it's not something that's part of our DNA necessarily. It's something where if you're deployed and you're in the moment, if you're in the military, it's something that's very close to you. Whereas with civilians, we're like, oh, yeah, why don't we, you know, I'm going to donate some money to this cause or I'm going to, you know, help settle refugees with giving a teddy bear to a little girl. Um, but what happened, what we stepped into, what I stepped into in that moment and and he invited me into was a life or death situation that was foreign to me. Um, so, so I came in and the gravity of what people were trying to accomplish was incredibly heavy and incredibly urgent, emergent even, um, And I learned that this was a group of people who was literally getting Afghans out of
1: Afghanistan. Uh, Annie, how bad was and is the situation in Afghanistan with regard to both Americans and loyal Afghans?
0: Well, I think the situation in Afghanistan, from everything I've heard, from everything I know, depends on what your role was during the Afghan war, during the, you know, when the United States was there um we have seen people that come through that are high risk that are extremely high risk um and getting those people out has been urgent getting american citizens out has been urgent but what's happened is that um for people who have worked and been allies with with americans for people who have actually worked towards um liberty uh, of, you know, educating girls and speaking against the Taliban and fighting in their own way, even through NGOs or nonprofits, if they are um, on the ground and they did and they were an ally, um, they're being killed. Um, and so is it dire? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're failing. Sure. Oh, can I share
2: um, context? I have this this uh, way that I describe our perception in the United States, it, the, this, our CNN lens, and it's not a knock to any one particular news agency. Other than I remember the first time that I was in Israel, and I, um, you know, grew very close to the Israeli people, spent some time in a kibbutz, and then I went down to the Temple Mount, and I got in a cab with a, a Palestinian man and his two sons, eight-year-old, six-year-old, and we drove to Bethlehem. We drove over the wall, and I realized I've spent my entire life watching CNN, watching different news channels, having a perspective, understanding, you know, defining this conflict in my opinions based on what I've seen, but I've never been in the car with the dad. Now I'm a father of six children. And as a father, you start understanding the true, like what's going through this man's head. And how does that shape the reality of the conflict in the Middle East? It's not about the big power players and the leaders and the financial organizations. It gets down to that dad trying to earn money for his, to pay for his family, for their limited resources, for the world he's raising his children. And, and it gets real. Right. And you have this humility to realize, wow, like I said, when I went to the whiteboard, I don't have a clue about Afghanistan. And yet, you know, when it fell apart, those initial days, I was like, well, they should do this. And why didn't they just stand up and why didn't blah, blah, blah. And and it wasn't until I got into the hit to actually reading thousands of these evacuation requests and understanding that the sacrifices that our Afghan allies made were so far and above anything that I have ever been asked to do. Any sacrifice, taxes, standing in the line to vote, you know, whatever, like so much more, such a heavier price that they've paid, that their wives have paid, their you know spouses have paid, that their children have paid um, for the chance at freedom. It's not like Cut dry, just like if you go back to the American Revolution, it's not like everybody was a gung ho patriot. Like these people take enormous risks trusting our country. And I, I got this tremendous respect for them. And then Which makes as, this
1: which makes this situation all the more heartbreaking. I agree with you hundred percent, and that's and a great point part. to make. These people yeah. are really hanging it out on the line and not expecting yeah. an, an administration change that just leaves them high and dry.
2: So imagine our, our family that we just got out, so I can mention them. Um, and their father spent seven years serving with the with the U.S. military, earned his citizenship. I mean, how many of us can say we earned our citizenship through our service? Um, and and his wife and his children are being hunted. And I'm not talking like, oh, they're gonna be you know disparaged or people call them. They're being hunted. Like we will take your children out and we will shoot them in the head. We will torture them like a very real reality of that. And so we go from our offices and our home offices and our perception of fair and, you know, what's good or bad, all of a sudden thrust into a world where we are literally in the moment, the only thing that stands between these people having, these people have sacrificed so much for us, having the opportunity to come and have the chance to live Or being hunted until they're dead. Like that, that, that much. And I think that that's the intensity that all of us were thrust into immediately when we got into this. It wasn't like, oh, let's, like Annie said, let's send them money or we wanna do good things. And there's a huge amount of work to be done still now. But this mission was entirely about taking people that will be killed if you don't do your job and getting them to a place where they won't be killed. And I remember the morning I woke up when when our little family, they're my family, I got involved in this project. We grew it in like 10 days from like 15 people and Annie needs to tell a story of what she did because she was the catalyst of there to 2000 Patriots. And, and, And it grew way beyond my ability to have direct influence. And at one point I picked one family and I said, this is going to be my family. And I worked with the pineapple express and I, 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 Hey, you guys didn't get them. Go back and get them, go here. You know, we got them in safe house every morning. I had families, friends all over the country, different faiths, praying for those poor children by name, praying for that mother, praying for that father, calling that father for a month while they were in that, that safe house in Mazal Sharif. And, and that morning when I woke up, when I got that text, the plane had gotten out and they were in Abu Dhabi. I realized that today I wasn't going to have to ask the question if, if they're going to die,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? And that was, sometimes you don't realize that to the facts that every day I was waking up, getting on my knees and praying to God that they wouldn't be killed. I don't have to do that every day today. I do that for two other families right now, but I don't have to do it for them. And Annie even got them, I guess, Kentucky Fried Chicken the other day, which is awesome. <laughs> you know, So every, they're, they're just so grateful. They're like, oh, we're doing great. It's going to take them a while to get through, but they've got blankets and have a little place and this mother doesn't have to wake up wondering if her children are going to be shot this morning. Whew. That's the reality that so many people live with. And to get thrust into that, deal with the emotional part of that, and then to be productive and to thrive in that. And to bring citizens around in that, it was just so empowering. So, and I, I really want to pivot back to, to where you brought came in, and you created you know some structured organization and tasking and Cisco's role and how they embraced that. I think that's such a great thing to tell. If you don't mind.
1: Go for it, Annie.
0: Yeah, I'm happy. So, okay. So when when Andy pulled us in, you know, my role, so I work at Cisco and I'm focused on the future of human-machine interaction. So we look at the future. We look five years ahead, 10 years ahead to try to figure out, you know, where people are going to be and how Cisco needs to respond. And So being a part of Cisco, what's interesting is the Cisco is the number one place to work in the world. So we have... You know, there's a reason for that. We uh, do a lot of things. We invest in uh, nonprofit organizations and in um, specific uh, humanitarian needs. We get a week to two weeks off every year to be able to actually spend 40 hours a week to spend just volunteering. Um, And so Cisco uh, was prepared uh, for something like this to happen in context of equipping and empowering people to have the space to do this and to encourage people to do this. In other companies, they'd be like, oh, well, you have these projects to work on. In many situations, people paused and put things on hold to do it. And what they did initially, what was asked initially of us was the this grassroots group of people who were actually extracting uh, people from Afghanistan. What they said was, you know, this is what we need. What we need is we need infographics. We need somebody to send emails. We have this you know, uh, secure email account, we need somebody to jump in and start to respond to these 300 emails we have with information that can help them understand and navigate what to do. Uh, And we need something simple, like an infographic uh, that gives them guidance, uh, you know, and, and so we as a team came, I actually pulled back and I said, all right, it's time for me to recruit volunteers. So I went to all of these channels I'm on. I looked at women at Cisco, we have a women of Cisco group, my team, uh, we report up uh, through the CX organization. There's thousands of people there. Um, so so started going and digging around and pulling in willing volunteers. And my gosh, there were a ton, dozens just in that first 24 hours. And so pulling in people saying, there's urgency. This is what we need to do. We need to, you know, we have three 300 email addresses representing, you know, hundreds of people um if not over a thousand people in these families you know these are not just individuals these are families of three five ten twelve people trying to get out together and so we need to give them information that can help them survive uh, if they leave survive if they stay um, to understand you know where to go and and what this organization um, is able to do and so we got information from them and i pulled in a group of creative people copywriters And I want to pause for a minute because Cisco is seen as a networking company, right? We can create computer hardware and that's fine, but that's a a minority of the part of the business that we do now as compared to how much software and services we we create. And so if you think about, you know, people that are IT and they're going on the ground and they're networking and they're plugging in cables to things, that's really a minority of what we actually do now. What we have is we have human-centered people who are providing services, who are thinking and talking to customers. And... Historically, Cisco's disaster response team, called TacOps or um, Disaster Incident uh, Response Team, dirt. They would go and they would, you know, have a van and they would go provide, you know, satellite services or networking services on the ground in uh, emergent situations that are like disaster areas. This was different. Cisco, Cisco's humanitarian efforts on large scale had never have never formally been established in the context of services, of creative, of communications. And slowly what is happening is that, actually I say slowly, increasingly what people are doing inside Cisco is they're they're picking up projects like this. So what happened is people have been hungry, people who are liberal arts majors, who are creatives, who are, you know, these aren't networking people, they've been like, we want to do something. We want to participate data scientists. How can I help? You know, I see the news, my heart is broken. What can I do? And so what this did, what Andy pulling us in, what this team of grassroots people did is they gave Cisco employees a place where they could take their unique skills that typically are not leveraged in disasters, right? These are not veterans necessarily. We did have veterans involved, but this was like a liberal arts and creative initiative where we were pulled in and I pulled all these people together and said, all right, this is our mission. Our mission is communications. Um, And so what we did was starting at that moment and for a period of, I believe like eight days, we manned an inbox and we sent emails and categorized everyone who came in based on whether they were an American citizen, an Afghan citizen. Did they have a visa? Had they applied for a visa? Were they sponsored, et cetera? Um, pulling all these the this information together, all these people together 24-7, because Cisco's a global company. So we started with people in the Americas, and then um, recruiting is, you know, the it's 7 o'clock in the evening, and people in Asia are just starting to start their day, and I say, we need help. So pinging these groups and pulling people in. And so that night we had coverage um, in the Asia-Pacific area. And then the next morning, people coming in from the East Coast and, you know, having Europe... Uh, kind of bridge the gap, we started having people that were creating creative elements, that were creating infographics that were in simple English, in dark mode, because we weren't sure how long the power would be on. Um, And really looking strategically at life-saving things. So not just saying, hey, bring food and water, saying bring salt, bring medical supplies. Uh, This is what to do with your documents. If, If people had on their phones applications or documents that were in English, they were being killed because they were seen as an ally to the United States.
2: Yes. Well, they- let me Let me add something to that, Annie, who was so much about it, was um, you all of a sudden were thrust into information. Um, there's, and there's an echo sometimes to these as well. Like you'll hear one person was killed and then five people will hear that. And so all of a sudden you're hearing those five people say people were killed and you're hearing, five people were killed and 20 people were killed. And so we are all totally new to this information, um, uh, intelligence space and the disinformation as well. And, and emotional burden. what was so impressed as Annie dashed into that was that Cisco recognized the need to not only stand up the emotional support for the people we were dealing with. How do you tell the person who's being, what do you tell the person who's being hunted? What do you tell them? I remember when I was a kid, uh, in middle school, I was involved in a project um, with Kosovo, and I put together a um, a like pen pal uh, activity between kids in Reno, Nevada, and uh, kids in uh, in Kosovo. And when I met the, the the leadership delegation that came to the United States, asking, "Well, you know, what can we do?" and I was just this, you know, chipper Boy Scout, and and they said, "Why didn't you know Why didn't you send the troops sooner?" And I'm like, "Well, because I'm." Twelve, sir. You know, like, but but it really realized, wow. You know, like, how do you deal with people that have just been through such trauma? How do you, what to say? And and so, as Cisco realized, not only was the emotional burden strong on how we would message and support and impact every person. Like, we engaged with about thirteen thousand eight hundred uh, Afghans, Afghan allies. Last count I saw, we did not get everyone out. No, nowhere close to it. Uh, we played a role in, in, in getting about 1,200 Americans out, and then some portion of those 13,000, but every one of those 13,800 people at some point got a communication that had value and had someone in their corner. And whatever the path they got they got on, we were part of the solution. And so Cisco recognized not only were we part of the solution, part of the positive nature for those people in dire times, but also that this was gonna play an incredible heavy mental health role on all of the participants. So they took that into account and, and had this, Annie and others had this kind of saying, it's like never apologize. Like you, your natural proclivity is to say, I've been given this task. I'm so sorry, I can't get it done. I'm so tired, I need to sleep. And, and yet if I sleep, people will die. And we say those things in life a lot, but this is a situation where it's true. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, everything we don't do means people let didn't get out. Right. And so um, I found myself I'd been given a task. Yeah. Oh, you're you're a computer person. So sure. Set this API up and do this whole uh, communications integration thing. Not at all what I do. But, you know, of course, it's like, sure, I'll do it. I worked on it for like seven hours and got to the point like it was the end of the day. I, by the way, we had just a week before this had our new newborn baby born. And so. You know, we whole family had COVID in the house at the time, like, you know, and just a newborn baby. And here I am just at my max. Right. And and it reached it was probably 11 o'clock at night. And I was getting pinged on the Slack channel. Hey, what's the status to this thing? And I I went and kind of hid in my room and it's thought, I don't want to apply because I don't want to be the one that says I didn't do it. Yeah, I don't want to be that one. And so I called Annie and I said, hey, do you have anybody that can do this? And she found somebody in in um, one of the Cisco employees in Australia. And actually, by the time she rounded him up and got him on a call to do the handoff, we already had another volunteer step up to take on that task and said, well, I'm ready to go. What do you want done? I'm like, well, we need some mapping and some business intelligence around these data. What can you put together? And I got to go to bed that night knowing that, I'm going to say an American was picking up the mission where and it allowed me to sleep and the reason I say an American it sounds very strange to say that the United States is a sovereign country we're sovereign geographic boundary when we fought a revolutionary war and we think about our battlefields the philosophy of America was so potent in the salons of France that it spread all over the world and by the time that we got you know, to Yorktown, the British were being actively engaged by seventeen sovereign countries around the world, and it became literally a world war. And that wasn't about the defense of territory of the United States. It was it was a fight for the philosophy of of the empowered human being. And so the greatest compliment that I can give to these patriots, Australian, you know, Indonesian, wherever they are, Cisco employees and other otherwise, was that I would call them my brothers. I would say that they are as American as I've ever been. And I went to bed that night beyond anything that I could carry. And the only thing got to me to bed to be able to go to sleep was knowing that some, some Aussie down there was, was, was picking up the flag and running with it. And I was listening to, to Nathaniel Hale in your, in your podcast. And I went to bed and I, I just loved that story and that, that, that. he said as they were executing him to say the only regret i have is that i have but one life to give for my country how true how true so many hours man i just you know there's only so much andy and 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 to have that support and that you know patriotism i was just listening out of the time that this was going on obviously we're still in the COVID pandemic haiti had just had the earthquake hurricane ida was just coming through louisiana and i mean this, this devastation from louisiana up to you know, literally flooding in Westchester, New York. Um, you know, uh, Tennessee had the week before been had its major flooding incidents. The area I live, I, I grew up in around Reno, Nevada, by Lake Tahoe, was being engulfed in two major wildfires. I mean, mass of fires. Like, pick your poison, man. And I, I see so many people online saying, you know, it just feels like it's all crashing down. And the worst part of our modern paradigm is that you know, here comes the crisis, you're being asked to Netflix and chill. And I think that that's the most pernicious, horrible thing is this idea that, don't worry, the professionals will handle it. Because if we went back to World War II, we all rolled up our sleeves and I love the image and the optics of the the two little boys with the red wagon going around picking up cans and bottles, you know, and any scrap metal they can find because they know that putting that metal in that in that wagon and dragging it down to the recycling depot they are doing their part to build airplanes and put bombs on target and the wars and bring their brothers home and what i realized in this is you don't have to do it all you don't have to fight the wildfire just like those little boys didn't have to shoot the guns but to have a role in the mission is the most powerful thing that we can do as human beings no matter how small that is And that's what helps me to reconcile what I couldn't do is because I was a part of supporting others and doing what they did. I wanted to bring to light, you guys sent me a lot
1: of links and a good portion of those links were the email contacts made uh, by both yourselves and others, which described the horrendously dangerous situation that a lot of these refugees were in. And it also brought to light the service that these Afghans had provided to our military and the obvious fact that uh, if it were discovered, their lives uh, would be over quickly. And uh, it also brought to light in words like, we believe we saved at least 32 people. Uh, Others that said, uh, over the last 48 hours, I've been on the phone or in text contact with the wife. Now, this wife was stranded, she has braved gunfire at the north gate of the airport, kept her children at the north gate while smoke grenades and riots took place. She even stayed there after two of her kids were injured by people stepping on them during a panic riot when the crowd was smoke-grenaded. Mm-hmm. And parts of the other, other parts of these threads indicate the same tense human drama that uh, was going on, especially during those eight, eight or nine days, but also since then.
2: And I'll mention that that family... I have the picture of those children, as you do. And that family's in Kabul, and they're in their fourth safe house, and there's a team of people working around the clock, a bunch of West West Point cadet uh, graduates, actually, um, to to get them out. And so when you say that, it's, we hear the stories, but now I see it in my mind, and the reality of it is so potent, it's so real.
1: Annie, I was hoping you could cite some individual cases where lives were saved, and tell us what you're allowed to tell us regarding uh, how those people were guided out.
0: One of the things I'll say is that, and this is probably something: being part of the column strategy meant that we weren't interacting um, as, as in as much of a detailed uh, one-on-one way over, like trying to extract people. What we were doing was tagging people, letting them know that folks were coming. Okay. And so we, this is this is the beauty. The beauty of this is that. When you talk about families and you talk about getting people out, um, you talk about, you know, this is the information we have about people being extracted. So what happens is that Cisco was, uh, the Cisco civilian community was enough uh, away from people getting extracted. um, But we have a veteran community who was plugged in and who was actually... uh, Literally working day and night using the resources that Cisco had provided, using other resources that Digital Dunkirk had provided, which was a, a, a big slack group of over 2,000 people who were sharing information to try to extract people um, and help them uh, be safe. And um, One example of a girl who, I, I don't know if she got out, but she was 16 years old and her life was at risk and she didn't have her parents with her. She was just migrating and trying to figure out how to survive and she's terrified. And they got that person to shelter in place safely. Um, and, and was able to move that uh, girl to another location. Um, another example um,
2: American girl. To, uh, you know,
0: she was in she was an Afghan girl.
2: Oh so
0: we're not just extracting Americans. We're in we weren't just we weren't just extracting people because you can't get everyone out. Right, and so when we think about the impact of being able to get people out, that's one thing. But being able to get them safe is the goal: safe uh, sheltering in place until they can move, safe until you know everything settles down a little bit. Um, and now this is why Andy said there's you know a plane of 400 people. We're trying to get funded to get 400 people out. We had a plane coming into Abu Dhabi with hundreds. We have. You know there there are all these initiatives to get people out. It continues because sometimes, John, sometimes we're we aren't going to be able to get them out. And so the stories we have about people were able to save, we will never know how many of the people who got that information were able to cross boundaries, mm-hmm. were right. able to get across. And so that's that's one of the things where it's not instant gratification. Right. It's not something where we can say there's this many lives. Because what we did was we provided and tagged a list of people that was pulled and given to the United States government and used in part um, as one of the resources they had and that Pine- Pineapple Express had for giving them the names of people that we will never know.
1: Has the State Department been uh, a part of this effort? That's a question Andy might be able
2: to answer. <laughs> I, I know that the information is all been provided to the State Department. I, just, I mean, this effort isn't a singular thing. It's... Uh, lots of efforts. Uh, there was a certain point at which we we it all came to an end on our part, and our records were provided to them. Which I know there has been continued engagement, but it is we organically as citizens were able to accomplish something that the government, in its structure and format, no discredit to the government, could never functionally have accomplished. Were things done wrong? Yes. Were there there are things that 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 were problematic? Yes. But we moved at a lightning speed that, you know, that that was out of necessity. And um and we were part of I, I, I keep coming back to the idea that we were a part of the solution. Couldn't be the whole solution or everyone. We'll continue to do our part. Um but uh but 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 I think that we're grateful for, for all the part of contribution there. I, I wanna you mind if I I wanna highlight the one story I, I mentioned before the call and um Annie had organized like just a massive effort, just amazing and it and with those people they continue to invite additional people and it grew so fast where we would go into the slack channels and for for those that aren't familiar with Slack Slack it's kind of like a social engage a, a social environment for project collaboration and so you see these channels pop up in it of groups that are now doing things that you didn't even know what we were doing and all of a sudden there's people from the state department and there's people that are, there's a whole mass of 200 people that are working on lobbying that, you know, worth their congressmen. and you're seeing things pop up on the news and you're seeing, you know, the Washington post reporting on something and the Hill reporting on something. And in like when it gets way beyond you. Right. Uh, And, and there's consistently calls for, for action. And so when it came to the point where we couldn't uh, about two days before the 31st, about the 29th, we came to the realization that it was no longer tenable to get people off the plane. If you weren't already at the airport, you weren't going to get out. And said we need to find another path for these people overland. So there's the overland route uh, discussion that, that where things pivoted. And there, were, one of the asks came out. Uh, one of the project leaders said, "Hey, we need people with GIS skills, you know, geographic information systems, digital mapping. How to use satellite imagery to to get people to safety." And I put a call out because I've been doing some work with Texas State, and they have a huge investment they've made in their geography department, Texas State down in San Marcos, Texas. And, um, and I thought, well, maybe they can get us one or two experts, you know, willing to participate. Within a half an hour of putting solicitation out, we had 20 students and faculty members signed up to help. And within a half an hour of putting that solicitation out, we were on a, on a Google meet with them on boarding and the first thing and these are people that have no experience in this right they have they have GIS experience with mapping and they have remote sensing so like satellite you know work with satellite satellite imagery and so and and so the um, project leaders from our, our group jumped in and were very fierce with them like you have to understand you are going to tell you're going to give a path for someone and you're going to say this is the best choice. And if they follow it and you send them up, you know, some, some hillside and they are captured, you'll play a role in that. If they fall to their death off a cliff that you didn't see was there, you'll have had a role in that. And, you know, invited anyone who couldn't carry that lifetime burden of having been a part of that, that tragedy to drop from the call. Not one person dropped from the call which was so impressive to me. And so we went around introducing each other and we went through three or four students and it was very impressive. Their credentials. I'm a second and third year PhD student in GIS. You know, I've got all this experience with the ArcGIS software. Um, and then we got to the, the, after three of them got to a, to a young man and he said, you know, I, I don't know how much I can do because I have only had one GIS class. He says, but I was a Marine for five years and I served two tours in Afghanistan and I, I just want to do my part. And he's a, he's a young man who after that sacrifice is out building his life. He's a father, he a young child. And here's, here he is on Friday night answering the call. And it was really, I, I think it was so touching to, for his peers to have the chance to hear that and the respect that they had I know we have this veteran community that I'm sure they wonder, does anyone does anyone care that the, the camaraderie and brotherhood that I saw of love and acceptance from the Vietnam veterans towards the Afghan veterans was really tremendous, you know, for all that they put up with. So for the for this young man who had served his country to be supported by his campus community was really a beautiful thing. And so we went through four more through again, really excellent, you know, skills, second, third year, PhD candidate, blah, blah, blah. And, and we have a, a green beret named Joe, you know, 10 tours in Afghanistan, big beard legs, climbed up every mountain, you know, special forces guy. He tried in, and he just was blunt with it. So you guys, I get the good intention, but you're going to get people killed. This is not going to work. I've climbed up those hills and you don't know the difference about with these geomorphic hazards like landslides. You don't know that that hillside that you think just looks like dirt is really shale. And when they climb up that hillside, they're going to slide it's make a lot of noise. And, you know, they're going to get killed. And, and, And we really should just shut this thing right down right now because you don't have any chance of success. And he's just being honest. Right. Mm hmm. Uh, but then he said, he stopped and he said, you know, the one chance you have, and this is just thrown out there, the one chance you have would be if you could find goat trails. And our next student, who who introduced himself, he says, my name is Mo Hussein. I'm a second year PhD student at Texas State, and I specialize in geomorphic hazards. And more importantly, I came here as a refugee to the United States. And they came here from Sudan, where I was a goat herder. Unbelievable. I have never had a more patriotic experience than that in my life. Eagle Scout, you know, apple pie, flag salutes, go to the Capitol. I understood America better in that moment than I ever have. When a Sudanese refugee goat herder comes to the United States, becomes a Ph.D., you know, expert in a very specific discipline at Texas State University. When the call comes in, he steps up. And and that matters. And so I think that totally reshaped how I view all of the Afghan refugees. There's there the optics are easy. You're gonna find a bad egg here and there. You're gonna look at people and say this or that. But like here's some here we are serving people who have fought for us who put their lives and their children's lives on the line for it. And Mo Hussein steps up and that that's everything American to me. And so a couple of students later, there's one, one young woman who, who comes on and she says, I'm, you know, just, just your all American girl. Right. And she's, she's, I'm a senior at Texas state in geography. I have experience with ArcGIS and, and I also know computer programming, and so I can help with that. And we're, you know, it's a data science company, we're super jazzed about that. Let's get on board and do it. And then she says, But the reason I'm here is because my dad is a Navy SEAL. And I just could not sit here watching all this happen and and not do my part. And so I, I have five daughters and my and a son. And and I just imagine I pray that as a result of my children seeing my activity, that someday when the call comes, that I have confidence that they will stand up to serve when the call comes. Annie also has, you know, shared with me her experiences with her children, seeing mommy do her work and, you know, and, and, and feeling a part of that. Annie, you know, your you're part of that narrative is, is so powerful.
0: I have three children and what happened when i was working for 10 days straight on this like through the weekend and one of the days i was working was my birthday (laughs) yep and so you know i was like what an amazing opportunity for me to take this you know saturday this birthday and to be able to serve and so the kids not only like we we put it off we actually celebrated my birthday this past weekend with cake and candles and singing because on my actual birthday i was heads down focused and I would take time away, you know, and in, you know, for 15 minutes, um, be there, be present, uh, roll around with them, tickle them, you know, talk to them, get caught up on their day, and I would go right back to it. And so they have seen mommy serve, um, and they have seen a fraction of what families uh, of of military, our military veterans and our active duty military actually go through. I mean, it's the teeniest bit where I'm serving a little bit. Um, and and they see it and they they recognize the power that they have um we at cisco also had a tremendous number of refugees and veterans that stood up and they said how can i help the earth they got the urgency uh when you look those those communities i talked at the beginning about the idea that civilians don't necessarily understand the urgency of it and the gravity of it because we're so disconnected from um, the reality of, of the experiences, the life or death experiences in these uh, refugees' lives. But man, our refugee, our refugee community and from everywhere, refugees from every country uh, that, that has really uh, experienced strife like this, and then also our veteran community were like, give us a mission, tell us what to do. So we had people translating documents, uh, we had people who were buying things and there was a point where we had over 300 people who had raised their hands willing to help we had so many people we didn't have jobs for them and so i said all right go to your communities go to the resettlement that's happening so i got photos of people who were going to target and buying supplies um i this past week uh, the family that andy was helping um that that was able we were able to get them he and his team were able to get them into abu dhabi i reached out to my colleagues um, in the Emirates and in, um, uh, in Dubai, and I said, we have four four kids and a mom, and we don't know how long they're gonna be in this um, this uh, humanitarian city in the Emirates, and they need some stuff, man the baby the baby needs diapers. Uh, the kids don't have any you know toys to play with or can we get them a soccer ball? can we get them a hat and and I got pictures of these these people that were, you know, they're closer to it. We as Americans are so uh, insulated um, and uh, we're so far away from this reality. But in Dubai, they're closer to it, right? They're closer to that strife. And so what they were able to do was everybody stood up and they put together um, suitcases and luggage full of supplies and toys and perfume for the mom and just all of these things that were, were necessities and also luxuries, hired a driver got it. And and we got pictures of those kids um, playing with those toys, holding that doll. Um, and it was amazing how when we think about veterans standing up and refugees standing up, but then civilians who have no experience serving their country in a way that is as as well-recognized, they were still able to serve. And these weren't just Americans. These were people and allies, uh, people from all over the world were standing up and saying, how can I help? And Cisco was able to coordinate that effort, pulled him in 24-7 to be able to say, here's what you can do. But we did have so many more people that wanted to help than we were actually able to coordinate. And we ended up having shifts and shift workers. We ended up having shift, uh, shift supervisors, having incident command, employing um, FEMA's um, NIMS, uh, National Incident Management Structure. Uh, it was as close as I've ever gotten to a military operation because by the time we'd been doing it for five days, our veteran community came in and said, let us, let us help you organize those." And so we had multiple teams on multiple projects, but it was fascinating and it was, uh, I was so honored to be a part of it and for my kids to see it.
1: Thank you um, both for being a part of it. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what kind of um, static did your volunteers run into when we've got, a, for a period of time, we've got 10,000 volunteers, there's more, there's more volunteers than there are actual jobs to do. What kind of static or negativity did they have to go through in order to be of help? Did, did, did we have any part of our uh, State Department or, or military saying you guys are, are causing more trouble than, um, than you are help? Because it's obvious you know, when you're sifting through the facts now that you guys are far, far more help to people than you were trouble. But what did you have well, to sift through, especially during the, the, the heavy times?
2: Yeah, I have a, I have a dear friend who's a very advanced in the intelligence community space. And I would ping him from time to time and say, hey, here's what we're up to. And he was very candid. He's like, I know the guys at the gate. Like, you know, I'm going to tell you the problems you're creating when you do this. I'm going to tra- tell you the chaos you're creating when you do this. Um you know, there are certain harms here. Like when, in retrospect, yeah, you're absolutely right. Would I do it again in a heartbeat? Did we save lives? Yes. And and I think that one thing is the professionals and the professionals have a role to be respected and perspective to be respected. respected they'll be straight and blunt with you and say, here, here's where it went wrong. Here's where you could have done better. But not one of them has ever told me You shouldn't have done it. Not one of them has ever made me feel less than a part of the mission. And 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 while the formal channels need to say certain things and while, you know, this was never about politics. So I'm not going to take the 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 dialogue there by any means. And we all know we want to. But this was this was about citizens doing the greatest thing I've ever seen citizens do. And, and I think you mentioned before the call, we were talking about um, how our American Revolution was citizens of all stripes and colors, united by literally a philosophy from our Declaration of Independence. It's Molly Pitcher. It's, you know, it's, it's men, women, children, um, you know, freed slaves. You know, when you go to the Independence Hall, you have multiple statues of like even the 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 jewish uh uh uh, influence in that and different different faiths and i i think that we have that in our national fabric that's what we want to be right and then when we codified our government we had a more select group of people predominantly more economically advantaged to when we said we the people represented the people and then we 100 years later we fought a civil war and uh, with that we we included in that um, in that right to vote we included um, you know people of of all races and then uh, a good 60 70 years later we got around to including the other half of our species and you know but in by not excluding people by gender and in the 60s you know as marched across uh, the south and civil rights movement we Improved our laws to, to facilitate the reality of all people, of all races, creeds, colors, um, you know, being able to, to vote and send people to Washington to do the work. And we still are, what well, we have in our national fabric that we all roll up our sleeves and go to work, we all do our thing, sometimes we become too detached. We imagine that our only role is simply to vote, to send somebody else to do the work to fund the military, to salute them and say, thank you for your service, but not to be the ones in the trenches by their side. We are moving into, and this is why like Annie's visioning and future activity with Cisco, as well as my, you know, data science activity is so, you know, beautiful to us. We're moving into a place where our digital engagement, if we use it right, can empower the greatest use of our democracy we're not solely a representative a representative republic where we send other people to do the work for it but where we are there at anywhere in the world at any time and able to do our part as part of that we the people so that's that, that's the most um you know in a time where the world is burning down which seems to be the time when americans find themselves you know um in pearl harbor or uh, you know, you name it. 9 nine eleven. 9-11, exactly. Um, in, in our digital Dunkirk, I gained a greater hope in what America can be than I've ever had. From yes. Mo Hussein, the Sudanese goat herder GIS expert, I gained a greater respect for the people around the world and what they have to contribute to what to our cause.
1: There's so many people around the world who want to have the kind of freedom we have here. All I, all I need to know sometimes when I get down on what's going on and with our country, I open my wallet, I look at a $1 bill, and I see Washington's picture. I also remember what Nathan Hale said as part of his speech when he said, we're given our rights by God and not by a king. And I see the words, e pluribus unum, of many we are one. And I realize we're in the greatest nation on earth. Wanted to ask you, Annie, have the lessons that we've learned here made us stronger? Or have they enabled us to come together again in future humanitarian crises even more efficiently? What's your opinion on that?
0: Yeah, one of the things at Cisco is they are actually, they've been talking about it. Again, this is a nascent initiative where they're like, oh my goodness. Because in Cisco, what happened was that we actually had a grassroots effort in India during COVID where we had dozens if not hundreds, and and it's hard to quantify because it was so grassroots, of employees that were adopting families and literally finding ventilators and literally checking on hospital beds that were available and getting those people to hospital beds and doing data analysis. And uh, it was a remarkable life-saving initiative where, People were and this is, again, one of those initiatives where where this is this is a little this is foreign to a lot of civilians because it's a life or death situation. But I was talking to one of the people who volunteered and he was just like, and I know the ones that didn't survive. I know the ones that did and I know the ones that didn't. So when you think about that, that's another grassroots effort and Cisco's paying attention. So one of the things we talked about is instead of trying to formalize the initiative, how do we empower people with the tools they need to do it on their own? And so within Cisco, that's one of the things we're talking about. Where does it make sense for Cisco to take over versus where does it make sense for us to just give people the tools they need to do it on their own? And those are two different things. And and I think that we, I think that's one of the things, the like talking with the Air Force and doing a design exercise and the innovation group around kind of civilian engagement, those are going to be great things to wrestle with. Uh, because right now when there are formal initiatives where I'm at, you know, civilians are ready to participate and want to donate, um, their time and, and give their time and their hearts, um, I'm I'm referring them to resettlement efforts. And those are formalized uh, with nonprofits that oversee. But the urgency of this, and, and to Andy's point, the beauty uh, of being able to be reactive in an urgent, fast way, is I believe um, one of the things that a formal effort will never be able to quite do because when Cisco was pulled in, they said, we need an infographic. And within hours, we had an infographic. We need to send an email. And, uh, you know, I hovered my finger over that send button because I was sending them in batches. And every time I sent an email, I had to BCC all of the email addresses because if I put them on CC or I put it in the tube, everybody would see everybody else and people Mm -hmm. could die. And so hovering that finger over that send button, you know, these are things that are difficult to formalize, but they're not impossible. So how can we empower and equip rather than control? And I think that's going to be the key to actually scaling this um, in a way that meets the needs that people have in their capabilities.
1: One question that still remains needs to be asked. What is the situation over there today? And how can average people help?
2: Uh, Two things about that. One of the biggest things that we provided in the early days was hope. Getting an email, feeling like somebody out there is trying provided for people in the moment hope and I believe very firmly that while we may or may not have been the end solution for them having an element of hope gives people it sparks something in the human spirit and so probably the most impactful thing was to provide hope in that early day hope is waning if you're there if you the longer you're there the more people die the more people who would have otherwise stood up Learn socially that they're putting their lives and their children's lives on the line, and so they start beginning to conform in a much bigger way. Hope is waning. I think that that is that's something we'd be keenly aware of. Our activities don't just matter for the people that we serve, you know, dr- that we get out directly, but they matter to the people who are are, are waiting for their chance or I, fighting. For so I, so that that is challenging. There are efforts. I I wish I had a really good you know I'll say it I'll say it by not saying it. I wish I had a lot of really good stories of what, of, of, of successes. Um, you know, Glenn Beck, whatever your politics are, played an amazing role with the Nazarene group. Um, the planes we got out were not in Nazarene group, but they were in that, in that same convoy, you know, enabled by that. And that was enabled for a very short window of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that anyone who has authority to have influence if they hear our message that they can put put past any any reservation and strategy that you know they may feel is political politically opportunistic for today and that they can pull a dollar bill out of their wallet just like you and really kind of echo that and, and 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 stand up just like George Washington would have you know yep. it's gonna be but you got to do what's right
1: I'm looking at a photo right now it's an AP photo. And the headline is titled, Effort Underway to Rescue Girls Soccer Team from Afghanistan. Uh, And here's a girls soccer team standing there with uh, what few belongings they have on a very rocky uh, desert landscape without anything behind it, as if they were in the middle of nowhere. And at the time this was taken, September 2nd of this year, they were trying to get out. Uh, I know they're. I know they're just one story in a thousand. But have you either of you heard anything about them? It was the girls' uh, national soccer team. Boy,
2: I, I know. Yeah. What they, what um.
0: mention
2: About them, but mm, there's a lot I want to they, say.
0: They've been given. They they're in Portugal. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, they were given asylum in Portugal, and they landed there. Um, yeah, a couple weeks
1: ago. Thank you. These these stories are such heartbreakers. The people in this country, especially the women, uh, put it all on the line for America, for their for their allies, for freedom, uh, for a new life, something a whole lot better than what they've had or what their ancestors had. They put it all on the line uh, when we got involved, and that's just what breaks my heart uh, to see them in this picture just trying to get out with their lives. Thank you thank you both. Andy, is there anything you'd like to wrap with?
2: You know, the the, the running joke that I've had through the whole thing with my family, you know, like I mentioned earlier, my, my, my family that we pick, was that I'd keep saying, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready for the barbecue because when you guys get here, we're going to have an awesome barbecue. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I have this running joke with Andy that this is, this is a whole lot of work to go in and do just to get authentic Afghan cuisine. But um, you know, and while I joke about that a little bit, it's and, and it's 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 odd to me because I've listened to you for I listened to your podcast all through COVID. I've, you know, I, I've, I've toured the country and experienced this history with you. It's it's odd to me to um, be on your podcast to be a part of history.
1: You you both deserve that honor. Thank you for everything you've done.
2: Thank you, John.
0: Thank you.